This is Space Time, Series 27, Episode 23, for broadcast on the 21st of February, 2024. Coming up on Space Time, planet Earth's Pacific plate pulling apart, the Odysseus lander on its way to the moon's south pole, and NASA's new PACE satellite reaches orbit. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new study has found that the Pacific plate is scored by large undersea faults that are quite literally pulling it apart. The newly discovered faults reported in the journal Geophysical Research Letters are the result of enormous forces within the plate tugging it westwards. The study's authors say some of these faults are thousands of metres deep and hundreds of kilometres long. The new findings are shedding fresh light on the century-old model of plate tectonics, which suggested the plates covering the ocean floor are rigid as they move across the Earth's mantle. One of the study's authors, Erkin Gunn from the University of Toronto, says scientists have known for years that geological deformations like faults happen on the continental plate interiors far from plate boundaries. But they didn't know the same thing was happening on ocean plates. It seems for millions of years the Pacific Plate, which constitutes most of the Pacific Ocean floor, has drifted westwards to plunge back down into the Earth's mantle along undersea trenches or subduction zones that run all the way from Japan down to New Zealand and Australia. As the western edge of this plate is pulled down into the mantle, it drags the rest of the plate with it, like a tablecloth being pulled off a table. The newly discovered plate damage at the faults occurs within extensive suboceanic platers formed millions of years ago when molten rock from deep within the Earth's mantle extruded out onto the surface, onto the ocean floor. The faults then tend to run parallel to the closest trench. Gunn says it was always thought that because suboceanic platers is thicker, it would also be stronger. But the new models and seismic data are showing it's actually the opposite. It seems the platers are weaker. The authors studied four platers in the Western Pacific Ocean, the Ontong Java, the Shatsky, the Hess and the Manhiki. It's a vast area roughly bounded by Hawaii, Japan, New Zealand and Australia. They used a combination of supercomputer models and existing data to reach their conclusions. Gunn and colleagues found evidence that volcanism occurred at these sites in the past as a direct result of this type of plate damage, perhaps episodically or possibly continuously. But it isn't clear if it's still happening now because these plates are thousands of metres below the ocean's surface and sending research vessels down to that depth to collect data would be an incredibly major effort. Still, maybe one day. This is space time. Still to come, the Odysseus lander on its way to the moon and NASA's new PACE satellite reaches orbit. All that and more still to come on space time. Intuitive Machines' mission to the lunar south pole is launched into space, carrying seven NASA experimental payloads designed to prepare the way for the ultimate return of humans to the moon, this time to stay there. The mission was launched aboard a Falcon 9 rocket from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. 
the flights carrying the Nova Sea Odysseus lander, which will attempt the first ever private company landing on the moon. Minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, ignition and liftoff. Go SpaceX, go IM-1 and the Odysseus lunar lander. Vehicle pitching down range. Stage 1 propulsion is nominal. Falcon 9 has successfully lifted off from Pad 39A at Kennedy Space Center, carrying the IM-1 payload. Now, during ascent, we tilt the engines, the technical no, term being no, gimbling, and that turns the rocket horizontally. Mach 1, max Q. We have a few events coming up in quick su succession here. That will be MECO, stage separation, SES-1, and then the boost back burn startup on the first stage vehicle. Miko or main engine cutoff is where we shut down all nine of those M1D engines on the first stage vehicle that helps slow the vehicle down in preparation for stage separation, which is where the first and second stage will separate. And the first stage booster will begin its trip back to Earth. And the second stage vehicle will ignite that MVEC engine with SES-1 or second stage engine startup one. And then the boost back burn will begin on the first stage vehicle, which is one of three burns that's required for the vehicle to make its way back to today's landing zone. And this burn assists with the vehicle to reorient itself off. back towards land. Stage separation confirmed. And back ignition. Stage one boost back startup. And there we heard those call outs for Miko stage separation, SES-1 and the boost back burn startup on the first stage. Now the first stage is currently performing its boost back burn. This is where we ignite a few of the engines to bring the trajectory towards the landing site. Fairing separation confirmed. Fairing separation, stage fairing deployment has been confirmed. And we will be attempting to retrieve these fairing halves once they fall back to Earth with our recovery vessel, Bob. Both vehicles are on nominal trajectories. And some good call-outs there. And in about three minutes, there will be a couple more burns on our first stage to prepare for landing at landing zone one at Cape Canaveral. Again, we've completed the boost back burn on the first stage. That's the first burn of three. The next burns coming up will be the entry burn and then the landing burn for the first stage vehicle. Now we are at T plus four minutes and 17 seconds into today's mission. IM-1 is SpaceX's 14th launch this year and the lunar lander on board could be the first U.S. moon landing since the Apollo program ended more than 50 years ago. The MVAC engine on the second stage is ignited and we are currently in the first of two planned MVAC burns around T plus six minutes the first stage's entry burn coming up on that first stage vehicle. Again, that is the second of three burns. For the entry burn, we will relight three of those M1D engines, starting with the center E9 engine, followed shortly afterwards with the E1 and E5 engines. This helps slow the vehicle down as it enters back into the Earth's atmosphere. Now we need to slow down the vehicle to reduce re-entry forces, and that helps us to recover and reuse the first stage. And we are coming up on the entry burn for the first stage vehicle in just about 20 seconds or so. Stage one, burn, start up. The entry burn has begun with those engines relit. Stage one, entry burn, shut down. Stage one, FTS. And a very, very quick Both entry vehicles burn are on nominal there. trajectories. Great call-outs, both vehicles on nominal trajectories. And as I mentioned, that was the second of three burns required for this booster to return back down to land. The next and final burn will be the landing burn. That's just a center E9 engine burn. 
and that helps slow the vehicle down just in time for landing. That's coming up in just about 15 seconds or so. Stage one transonic. Stage one left burn. The landing Stage burn has begun. Nine four. touches down for landing. That is we just had confirmation. Nominal of orbit landing. We also heard and just heard Seco 1 as well as a confirmation of good orbit for our Falcon 9 second stage carrying our IM-1 payload. Now with that landing, that marks SpaceX's 273rd recovery of an orbital class rocket, including first stage landings for Falcon 9 and Falcon Heavy. The mission was actually slated to launch the previous day, but it was scrubbed when SpaceX discovered abnormal temperatures as it attempted to fuel up the landing craft. The flight is part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Initiative. It's designed to bring down the cost of science investigations and technology demonstrations going to the moon and make them more routine in the lead-up to the Artemis Man missions, which will be landing on the lunar surface later this decade. The hexagonal-shaped Nova Sea Odysseus lander successfully separated from its Falcon 9 upper stage and is currently on track to reach its Malaporte landing site on February the 22nd. The landing site is an impact crater 300 kilometres from the lunar south pole. NASA paid Intuitive Machines $118 million to carry their seven experimental payloads aboard Odysseus. After touchdown, the NASA payloads are expected to run for roughly a week or so before the lunar night sets in at the south pole, rendering Odysseus inoperable. Intuitive Machines has also placed some of their own cargo aboard the lander, including a digital archive of human knowledge and several mini-sculptures of the moon. It's the second such private American effort this year, after the first ended in failure when the Astrobotics Peregrine lunar lander began leaking fuel shortly after stage separation. Some sort of explosive event possibly related to the propellant leak also took place, dooming the mission, which instead of landing on the lunar surface, swung round the moon, came back to Earth, burning up as it re-entered the planet's atmosphere above the South Pacific Ocean. More recently, a Japanese lander successfully landed on the lunar surface, but did so nose down following propulsion problems. Apparently, one of its rocket thrusters failed during descent. Because of that, it was only able to collect scientific data for a short period of time when the solar panel was facing in the right direction to get sunlight. Soft landings by robotic spacecraft on the moon are challenging. That's because they have to navigate treacherous terrain with communications subject to a time lag of several seconds. And there's also that need to use thrusters for a controlled descent. That's because the moon doesn't have an atmosphere and so couldn't support a parachute landing. Intuitive Machines has two more missions slated to launch to the moon this year. Meanwhile, another Texas company, Firefly Aerospace, are also planning their own lunar mission. And Astrobotics will try again with a lunar landing, this time carrying a NASA rover to the lunar south pole towards the end of the year. We'll keep you informed. This is space time. Still to come, NASA's new PACE spacecraft reaches orbit and a Russian Progress cargo ship successfully docks with the International Space Station. All that and much more still to come on Space Time. Okay, let's take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor, Incogni. In the vastness of the digital universe, your personal details are like the stars, numerous and illuminating. But keeping them secure, that's a mission that could take forever. 
or so it would seem, until incogni. Securing your online presence and that of your family is crucial, but who has the time to chase down every digital shadow? And that's where Incogni comes in. It's a tool designed specifically to navigate the complexity of the internet to safeguard your personal information, saving you not just time, but also peace of mind. With Incogni, you don't need to embark on an endless journey across the web because Incogni's mission is to protect your data from data brokers, identity thieves, and the prying eyes of the digital cosmos. And here's your boarding pass to security. Visit incogni.com slash Stuart Gary to take advantage of an exclusive space-time listener offer. We're giving you 60% off and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Secure your digital footprint and get your time back to focus on what really matters to you. I mean, imagine a universe where your inbox isn't loaded with spam, where your personal details and those of your family don't orbit around data brokers and databases, and where identity theft becomes a tale from a bygone era. It's not science fiction, it's science fact with Incogni. In fact, it's what Incogni offers you every day. And making it part of your life is as simple as navigating to incogni.com slash Stuart Gary. So don't let the opportunity to protect your digital universe at a fraction of the cost drift away into the ether. Remember, the special offer comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what have you got to lose? Go now to incogni.com slash Stuart Gary. Embark on your mission to secure your personal details and those of your family with Incogni and let them do the heavy lifting through digital space. That's incogni.com slash Stuart Gary, your gateway to online privacy and security. Stay safe, stay secure, and keep exploring with Incogni by your side. And of course, you'll find the URL details in our show notes and on our website. And now, it's back to our show. This is Space Time with Stuart Gary. NASA's newest Earth science satellite has successfully launched from the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida aboard a Falcon 9 rocket. The Plankton Aerosol Cloud and Ecosystem, or PACE spacecraft, will study the impact of tiny, often invisible things from space, including both microscopic life in the water and microscopic particles in the air. The director of NASA's Earth Science Division, Karen St. Germain, says PACE will use a combination of hyperspectral instruments and polarimeters to study some of the smallest things that can have a big impact, providing new insights into the interactions between the ocean and atmosphere and how a changing climate affects these interactions. Microscopic phytoplankton in the ocean can develop into blooms vast enough to be easily visible from orbit. PACE's hyperspectral ocean colour instrument will measure the oceans and other water bodies across a spectrum of ultraviolet, visible and near-infrared light. This will enable scientists to track the distribution of phytoplankton and, for the first time from space, identify which communities of these organisms are present on daily global scales. Scientists and coastal resources managers can then use this data to help forecast the health of fisheries, track harmful algal blooms and identify changes in the marine environment. The spacecraft also carries two polarimeters, instruments that will detect how sunlight interacts with particles in the atmosphere. These data can provide researchers with new information on atmospheric aerosols and cloud properties, as well as air quality at local, regional and even global scales. Although NASA's been studying aerosols from space for decades, 
pace in its polarimeters will reveal the shape and size of aerosols, helping scientists answer questions about where they came from and how they might influence other parts of the Earth's system. This report from NASA TV. If we were to see the world with polarization-sensitive eyes, the sky would not be blue. Grass would look gray. There'd be all sorts of strange things that would be happening. What we reveal about the environment with polarization is really kind of another dimension of information. The PACE mission holds the keys to unlock that dimension with two toaster-sized instruments called polarimeters. And polarimeters measure the polarization of sunlight. So generally sunlight has a combination of different directions. Polarization is some preference for an oscillation direction. The ability to detect the specific direction sunlight reflects back to PACE's instruments will give us more information about clouds and tiny atmospheric particles called aerosols. The aerosols are really important to, the, to human health. So that's why we need to really quantify what is out there, like what type of aerosol there, and where they come from. Various interactions with, of, with light in the environment Scattering events off of particles or, or surfaces can impose some preference in the light that they reflect in, in terms of the polarization nature. The two multi-angle polarimeters were built by NASA's partners, both here and abroad. The hyperangular rainbow polarimeter number two, or HARP2, will measure atmospheric particles in one of its spectral channels in up to 60 viewing angles. Why so many angles? So this is like a camera, like any other kind of camera, but instead of taking a picture at one particular geometry of what we would understand as light, it's looking at a scene from different angles. We will move the different angles to the one single location. And in that way, we will collect the information at the, all the different angles. And those different angles can contain information about um, what's present in the environment. For instance, all these angles from HARP-2 can analyze the elusive cloud bow. Cloud bows are slightly distinct from a rainbow. Rainbow is light scattering off of rain droplets. Um, cloud bows is light scattering off of cloud droplets, which are a little bit smaller. By being able to observe cloud bows with polarization, and if we very accurately measure the geometry in which this happens, you know, the, the, the exact position of that cloud bow with respect to the sun in, in our observation, it tells us a lot about the size distribution of the cloud droplets. If we understand the size distribution of cloud droplets, we can understand things about the formation of clouds, um, how long they will persist, if they're going to turn into precipitation or not. Polarization can also reveal the shape of sun glint, the pattern of sunlight reflecting directly off the ocean surface. Sun glint patterns can tell us how rough or smooth the ocean surface is, which can determine wind speed at the surface. Clouds also have an impact on climate, but the interaction between the two, there's many pathways in which aerosols can interact with clouds. Cloud droplets can form around aerosol particles more easily and other things that are going on in the local situation. That complexity of the interaction between the two is one of the largest sources of uncertainty in understanding our global climate. And that's why we're making these measurements. The data from PACE will allow researchers to tease out the species of aerosols, which will help fine-tune climate models so they make better predictions. PACE's other polarimeter, SPECS-1, will tackle aerosol retrievals and give us precise measurements of the angle, degree, and intensity of polarization. 
but processing the sheer volume of data has been its own mission. Each pixel of data the polarimeters measure covers about five kilometers square. In that space are hundreds, even thousands of observations at different angles, wavelengths, and state of polarization. In the course of one full day of orbits, those pixels pile up. If you put them together, there will be more than 10 million pixels. That's huge uh, challenge on both uh, storage and computer powers. To meet that challenge, the PACE team has turned to a kind of machine learning called a neural network emulator. Even before PACE gathers any data, the emulator has been trained with millions of simulations of the possible atmospheric conditions in that one pixel. With this emulator, what would take an hour for one pixel is now a matter of milliseconds, allowing PACE to process a seemingly endless stream of data for the mission and atmospheric researchers all over. They all require a lot of measurement, especially if we can do that from a global scale with satellite. So we know where they come from, so we can trace their thoughts. We probably can help to reduce its impact on the human health. And in that report from NASA TV, we heard from PACE Project Science Lead for Polymetry, Kirk Noble Speezy, and PACE Polymetry Data Scientist and Software Lead, Meng Gao. This is Space Time. Still to come, a Russian Progress cargo ship successfully docks with the International Space Station, and later in the science report... A new study shows that people who obsess over political beliefs are far more likely to engage in things like cancel culture. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A Russian Progress cargo ship carrying two and a half tons of supplies for the International Space Station has successfully docked with the orbiting outpost. The Progress MS-26 was launched aboard a Soyuz 21A rocket from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in the Central Asian Republic of Kazakhstan, docking onto the aft port of the Zvezda module two days later. The vehicle now is on internal power and there is the retraction of the first umbilical. Ground support feeds now terminated to the vehicle. The auto sequence now initiated. The second umbilical uh, is retracting. The launch command now being issued for engine ignition. We have engine start. The engine's coming up to flight speed, turbo pumps at flight speed, and liftoff. All engines at maximum thrust, we have liftoff of the 87th Progress Resupply Vehicle to the International Space Station. The vehicle has cleared the tower, roll and pitch program initiated. All parameters are nominal for first stage performance. All engines on the first stage are performing nominally according to the blockhouse in Baikonur. Structural parameters are all reported to be normal. The engines performing normally, vehicle stabilization, structural parameters all normal. Engine pressures are nominal at the one minute mark into the flight. Good pitch and roll program for the vehicle, arcing out to the northeast. It's chase uh, to reach the International Space Station underway. The Progress is carrying fuel, food and scientific equipment for the seven crew members currently on station. Included in the manifest are 580 kilograms of propellant in its refueling tanks, 420 kilograms of drinking water and 40 kilograms of pressurised nitrogen. The pressurised cargo section contains replacement parts, materials for science experiments, as well as food, medical supplies and hygiene items for the crew. This mission is one of the rare joint Russian-American projects being kept alive since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. 
Washington and the Kremlin agreed in December to extend their joint flights to the orbiting outpost until at least 2025. Of course, it was only back in July 2022 that Russia threatened to withdraw completely from the International Space Station project over Western sanctions in retaliation for the attack on Ukraine. But ongoing delays in developing the core module of a new Russian space station has forced Moscow to remain part of the ISS team, at least for now. Assembly of the International Space Station began way back in 1998, and NASA plans to keep it operational until at least 2030. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week on the Science Report. As temperature records tumble and the threat of wildfires and dry conditions loom large, an international study by scientists from Flinders University has highlighted the urgency of making a more concerted effort to prepare for climate extremes in South Australia. The findings are reported in the journal Water, a warning of highs and lows in temperature and rainfall indices over the past 50 years, and how this will continue and amplify due to global warming. The study is showing an increase in maximum temperatures of at least 1.1 degrees Celsius, while minimum temperatures will drop by at least 0.7 degrees Celsius, and there'll be a lot less precipitation. South Australia is already considered the driest state on the driest continent. The researchers point out that more intense and extended drought periods, more extreme summer heat waves, alongside occasional extremes of frosts and floods, can all be expected. A new study shows that tracking the eye movement of preschoolers for as little as a minute could help with early detection of autism spectrum disorder. The findings reported in the journal PLOS One are based on an Australian study which tracked the eye movements of children both with and without autism while watching side-by-side images of geometric patterns and children performing yoga exercises. The researchers were able to predict an autism diagnosis with an accuracy of 94.59%. The authors say that from a clinical perspective, their findings suggest that the eye-tracking technology could be used as a biomarker for the presence of autism and symptom severity in preschool children. A new study has shown that people who obsess over political beliefs are far more likely to engage in online cancel culture. The findings reported in the journal Acta Psychologica are based on a survey of 460 people. It shows that the desire to show off one's moral beliefs, what the rest of us would call virtue signaling, and the urge to correct what they see as other people's incorrect views, that social vigilantism, also explains how intensively people engage in cancel culture. The Battle of Artificial Intelligentsia, IBM Turns 100, and New Updates for Apple. With the details, we're joined by technology editor Alex Zaharov Reut from TechAdvice.life. IBM has turned 100, but funnily enough, IBM celebrated turning 100 a decade ago. But the reason why it's turning 100 is because it was February 15th, 2024, that IBM turned 100 after having changed its name from calculators, tabulators, and company called CT. Machines. They changed it to International Business Machines from this company called CTR, which actually started in the 1800s. And uh, one of the only other companies I can think of that's that old is someone like Nokia, who started in 1850. 
1965 with a simple paper mill, took its name from the town of Nokia. So IBM's been around for longer than 100 years, but this is the 100th anniversary of its being called International Business Machine. Google have launched a new competitor to chat GPT-4. Yes, the big fight is between who has the best AI. Now, at the moment, that's OpenAI with ChatGPT. And in November last year, they launched ChatGPT for Turbo. And funnily enough, people have been complaining that ChatGPT has been getting lazier and not as smart. There's more people than ever before that are using it, but there's more competition than ever before. And the big company that we've been waiting to see what they would really do is Google. Now, they did launch Gemini. They used to call it Bard. Bard was their um, sort of Google assistant on, on GPT steroids. Yeah, they were calling it Bard. Well, they've changed it now to Gemini. So they've got Gemini Nano for your phone, Gemini Pro for your, you know, for free, and Gemini Ultra, which is their chat GPT-4 turbo killer. Is it enough to kill GPT-5 coming in the second quarter of this year? Probably not, because they're calling it Ultra 1.0, which makes you think there's a 1.5 or a 2.0 coming. And obviously, chat GPT is up to version 5, GPT-5, uh, although it's, you know, more versions than that. And the big fight continues. Of course, we all know the real advanced AIs with Skynet. <laughs> well, we haven't had Skynet appear yet. People are worried that connecting all these GPTs to the internet could get them to one day do the Skynet or Age of Ultron thing where they take over everything and try and launch missiles. Yeah, Alex, I'd get rid of the, the word could and replace <laughs> that with a would quite frankly. Well, look, all the talk from Google and OpenAI and Microsoft and Facebook and you know Amazon and other companies, that everyone's making their own large language model now. They're all very strong on ethics. Oh, yes, it's very ethical. We're never going to let anything bad happen. We're going to check everything. Data's all private and secure. But, but they look, did an ethics check last week. We reported on it and it proves that it's not ethical. And Tropics come up and said that you can have deceptive AI. I mean, AI is yes. programmed by people. People can program it to be good or bad. Any technology can be used for good or bad. There are bad people out there. Okay, let's move on to uh, Apple and their latest updates. So Apple have launched iOS 17.3.1. 17.3 introduced stolen device protection. Look it up. You've got to turn it on. But 17.3.1 fixes an annoying bug where text, as you were entering text into an SMS message or a note or on a web page, it could duplicate the text above that, show it to you in the line of where you're typing. And I noticed this happening. This was happening to me. This is why updates are important. What's on your website and what's on your show on TNT this week? On TNT Radio this week, I'll be speaking to somebody in the mental wellness space and also somebody from a well-known uh, cybersecurity company. So, uh, yeah, check out techadvice.life for all the details. That's Alex Zahara of Royd from techadvice.life. And that's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. 
That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 